We have a really great privilege this morning to have one of our couples who serves as part of our global staff team. Caleb and Nicolette, why don't you guys come out? I'm telling you, when you have the call of God on your life, you are obedient and you can't even always understand why you want to be so obedient. And even though you're going into a difficult place, why it brings you such incredible joy. I know that's true for this couple. I have said each time I've introduced them at Northwest that I really believe this, and Nicolette probably knows what I'm going to say. I believe these are two of the sharpest people that are their age that are in ministry today any place. They're both very incredibly well-educated people. They're personable people. They could do ministry any place on the globe. They could. And we are pleased beyond belief to be part of their ministry team, to support them on a monthly basis. And Caleb is going to continue in our series, uh, Summer in Psalms. So thanks for being here this morning, Caleb and Nicolette. We have two hours, right? I think they told me we have till, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> so in our kind of travel this, travels this summer and visiting and spending time with people, we've been going through a lot of transitions. The life that we live right now is a life of transition and change. One of the ways we've seen that worked out is in the life of our little girl. You saw her up there a second ago, Isla. She's three and a half, and as she's experienced transition and the loss that comes with the transition of what she knows to a foreign culture, America, there's dissonance that she experiences. She grew up, she was born in Beirut, she's grown up there. We speak English at home, but the culture that she knows is Lebanese culture. And so she's outside of her comfort zone, if you will, when you came here. And that was really evident to me the first Sunday when we had come back to the States, or the second Sunday maybe. The first Sunday we were sitting in church, I took her and we were kind of sitting at this church in Denver where our organization is located and kind of sitting midway back. And the service started and they made it through the first song or so and she was sitting next to me and I noticed she's just kind of sitting there not standing up and dancing like she normally does during the music. And I said, hey, Isla, what's, you know, what's, what's up? And we were just kind of talking. She goes, Daddy, I don't like this church. I said, how come? How come, you know, what, tell me about what you don't like. Well, the music's strange. They sing in English here. And I said, that's true, Isla, yeah, they do. They do sing in other languages and other churches. She just experienced a loss and felt disoriented because of that. How do we cope with disorientation, the disorientation that comes from loss? How do we cope with that? How do we deal with that? As I was thinking through what I wanted to talk about today, I'm coming to it, this question kept staying on my mind. What do you do in the midst of loss when your world is turned upside down? Probably two weeks before we left Lebanon to come back to the States, in one of the faculty meetings at the seminary, I heard one of the students had, had kind of come back and had given a report of the situation and a story from one of the churches that uh, the student was involved with in Damascus. And the story that the student told was of a woman who was in the church and she had lost her husband and several of her children in the fighting, there's been all kinds of conflict around Damascus, and she'd lost a portion of her family in the last two and a half years or so of this conflict. And this one Sunday morning after the service had ended and everyone was kind of milling around and having conversations, you can ima imagine this, kind of out in that area, the foyer outside, 
a bullet from the conflict that's going on. Just a stray bullet had been in the air, came down, and hit the head of her son and killed him. He was dead, her last son. She has no remaining family, immediate family. All of her children, dead. Her husband is dead. The church is wrestling with how they handle this. She's wrestling and grieving this tremendous loss of the last of her family. The church is wrestling with the, the death report had been kind of issued and they had determined the, the, the country that the bullet was made in. And the country that the bullet was made in is really important politically because, it, because depending on who made the bullet, it tells you which side was shooting the bullet. And depending on which side killed the boy, her, basically this widow, can get money compensation from the government or from the rebels for her child that she's lost, her martyr, this martyr in her family. The church is wrestling with and decided to not announce who it was because they don't want to take political sides. This is some of the difficulty that's being wrestled with in the church in Syria today. These types of, of questions. Who, you know, do you issue the death report? Do you explain these things? How do you worship in that context? How do you worship in the context of, of tremendous loss when life feels like it's torn apart, when life is upside down, when it's chaos? How do you worship? This morning, we were praying just before the service started, and I hadn't heard this news, I just heard a few more pieces of it. There's a church in Indiana, I don't know how many of you have seen the news yesterday, the youth group was coming home from camp. Some of you just came home from camp a couple weeks ago, right? The youth group was coming home from camp in the bus, and a mile away from church, the bus was involved in a really bad accident. Three people have died from this accident. I think the youth pastor and his wife, I think, and one other. Imagine, put yourselves in this church's position for a second. The kids are coming home from camp. The bus gets in an accident at McCrimmon in 55 just right around the corner, almost close enough that you can hear the sirens, you can hear the chaos. And now we're sitting here in church on Sunday morning. What does worship look like? How, how do you worship in the face of loss, of this grief, of, of chaos and disorientation? What does worship look like? In my life, I've experienced loss. I haven't experienced loss to that degree, I don't think. But I've experienced loss, and I know the dissonance that comes, this disconnection. I'm guessing some of you have experienced it. When you come to church, after having experienced loss, and we sing songs of praise to God, we sing these songs of, God, you're great. God, in you we overcome. God, in you we have hope. But the reality is, when you step outside of the church, when you step outside of, of this morning, there's not a lot of hope in life. There's, there's brokenness. There's chaos. There's disappointment. Have you ever felt that disconnection? Do you know what I'm talking about? When you come in and, and think, yeah, yeah, I can try to get into these words, but this doesn't match up with the rounds of chemo my mom's going through. This doesn't go along with the brokenness that my wife and I feel from our 
son or our daughter who is lost and going in this opposite direction of what we had hoped for his or her life. This doesn't match up with the brokenness I feel in my heart because my girlfriend just broke up with me or my boyfriend just, just cut my heart out. I keep making right decisions. I keep trying to live for the Lord and they just keep breaking it. How do you worship in the midst of chaos and disappointment, in the midst of this brokenness? What does it look like? My topic this morning and what I want to talk about is, is what worship should look like in the midst of disorientation, pain, and loss. I want to look together at one example from Scripture about what worship in the midst of chaos looks like. And it comes from the Psalms. This morning, I'm going to be turning to and looking at, we'll look together at the text in Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is where we'll be looking this morning. We'll go through the psalm kind of section by section and explore what worship in the midst of chaos looks like. What I want to do is look a bit at the background. I know, I think this is the last Sunday of the Psalms, Summer in the Psalms. What I want to do is look at the background of psalmic material. Often when we think psalm, we think, ah, praise and worship, yeah, woo. What are the psalms? What are the different kinds of psalms, the different kinds of literature? And so we'll look at the background really quickly, and then we'll walk through this psalm. There's three major sections, and we'll look at these three major elements of what worship looks like in the midst of chaos and disappointment that come to us in this psalm. So in order to do this, I want to narrow down types of psalms. We'll look, in, look at and explore a bit the types of psalms. And there are scholars who write ad nauseum, well not ad nauseum, it's really refreshing, but they write and write and write and write. And there's so much that's been written on categorizing and labeling and trying to figure out these different types of literature that exist uh, in the psalms. But you can boil that down to three major types. There's three major types of psalm material. There are psalms, the first is, there are psalms of, of orientation or thriving. This is when life is working as it should, and we praise God for it. I think these are the familiar ones to us. Life just makes sense, like in the Proverbs. So Psalm 149, I praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, praise him in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel rejoice in their creator. Let the people of Zion delight in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. We used to do this little praise band thing when I was growing up in my family, and we'd come out just beating drums to Psalm 149 and 150. Praise the Lord with dancing and drums and the harp and lyre. Bless the Lord. We're familiar with this type of psalm. It's a psalm of orientation or thriving. Life works. There's a second category that might be called a psalm of disorientation or a psalm of diving. This is when life takes a dive. Life makes no sense and everything is turned upside down. It sounds sometimes like Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Psalm 137 is a, is a fantastic example of this. The author, the psalmist writes, On the banks by the rivers of Babylon we sit down and weep when we remember Zion. On the poplars in her midst we hang our harps, for there our captors ask us to compose songs those who mock us demand that we be happy, saying, sing for us the song about Zion. The last verse of this psalm, Psalm 137, 
gives you the psalmist feelings about that. Oh, daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. It's called an imprecatory psalm. It's a curse at Israel's enemies for what they've done to them. That's a psalm. That's worship to God. Does that feel strange to you? Sometimes I think that almost rings true with our life, doesn't it? Emotions that we experience. This is a psalm, one of many. A third category can be called reorientation, a psalm of reorientation. Or another way of talking about it is survival. Survive. I was listening to someone recently and they said, isn't that the most bittersweet word in the English language? Survive. Because what does it indicate about what just happened? You're just, you're just barely making it. That's what this kind of psalm points to. And so, as you can tell from the name, this is full of suffering and yet having come through it, And so Psalm 131 is an example of this. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor do I have a haughty look. I do not have great aspirations or concern myself with things that are beyond me. Indeed, I am composed and quiet like a young child carried by its mother. I'm content like the young child I carry. O Israel, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. The wide variety of, of material that we see in the psalm, in the psalms, really are written for every aspect of the human experience. It's not just for times of greatness and yellow and blue skies and springtime. It's written for every aspect of life. Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, said of the psalms, it is my view that in the words of this book, the whole human life Its basic spiritual conduct and its occasional movements and thought is comprehended and contained. Nothing to be found in human life is omitted. I think of the app store, Apple's app store. There's an app for that, right? There's a psalm for that. What's your experience in life right now today? There's a psalm that fits that, that experience. One of the ones and the one that we're going to look at today, Psalm 44, is a psalm of lament. This is a technical term, and I'll explain it. It's a lament psalm. Laments, scholar of the Old Testament, Walt Brueggemann, wrote, Lament psalms are a cry of need in a context of crisis when Israel or the psalmist lacks the resources to fend for itself or for himself. Somewhere between a third and a half of all of the, psalm, all of the psalms in the book of Psalms are laments. A third to half, somewhere, depending on how you count, 65 to 67 of the psalms are lament psalms. In a sense, this is the majority category of psalmic material. Others are divided into different different categories. Bono was talking about the psalms. In his comment, he pointed to the psalms and particularly the lament psalms. He said, when you think of these, you should think of them, or this is how he explains them. Think of them as blues, jazz. Think of it as a blues song. It's not melody and perfect. It's this, there's a discord. There's an an off note to it. And that's that's the note that the Psalms strike. Last night I was chatting with my father-in-law, Bill, 
We were talking about song as I was preparing this. One of the songs that came to mind is a Johnny Cash song that came out a few years back about the title of the song is Hurt. It starts off, I said, hey, Bill, do you remember this song? Do you know this? No, I'm not familiar. with it. So we chatted a bit about it. He played it, looked it up on Spotify. The song starts out, I hurt myself today just to see if, it's still, if I still feel. He goes on to talk about the grief that he feels over his experience of life and the, the bad decisions and the brokenness that he's caused other people. One of the phrases that he uses to describe his career sticks out to me. In grieving this, he describes his empire of dirt. It's a powerful statement about a, a life of loss and trying to build up to that, but loss. We found a version of it. Nine Inch Nails did a cover of this song. And their version, they, they play, I don't know how to describe it. He can describe it better than me. But the chords that they use, great on you. They intentionally chose chords and musical structure that when you hear it, uh, I hurt someone today. And it's like, oh, you feel the hurt in the, in the style of the music they're playing. I think that's what lament psalms are after. You feel the hurt of the psalmist, the author, the community and the communal psalms. And we're meant to identify with that. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to hustle through here. A quick question. How many praise and worship songs can you think of that are songs of groaning, of weeping, sadness? Not many, are there? We were trying to think of some actually for this service, and, and it's hard to find them. It's hard to find those because that doesn't play well. You don't hear that on Christian contemporary music. It's not going to make the top four. Who wants to write songs that are, feel so disappointing? And yet the Psalms are full of those. I think we're missing out on expressing and experiencing together a significant aspect of the human experience, how we worship in the midst of suffering. So let's move into Psalm 44. I know I need to be moving here. Let's move on into Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is, a, is an example of a communal lament. It was written by a Levitical son of Korah, one of the clans of the tribe of Levi, the psalm, the speakers in the psalm were disappointed with God. And it's an expression of that disappointment. Psalm 44, we'll read the first section, verses 1 through 8. O oh God, we have clearly heard our ancestors have told us what you did in their days in ancient times. You, by your power, defeated nations and settled our fathers on their land. You crushed the people living there and enabled our, our ancestors to occupy it. For they did not conquer the land by their swords. They did not prevail by their strength, but rather by your power, strength, and good favor. You were partial to them. You are my king, O God. Decree Jacob's deliverance. By your power, we will drive back our enemies. By your strength, we will trample down our foes. For I do not trust in my bow, and I do not prevail by my sword. For you deliver us from our enemies. You humiliate those who hate us. In God I boast all day long. And we will continually give thanks to your name. And then this word, Selah. Pause, meditate on that. Does that sound psalmic to you? Does it sound like what we expect from the psalms? I think so. This is feels very familiar in, in some ways. This is material even that we've read in other parts of Scripture. 
This is Proverbs. This is life when it's working. God says, it's not because of your might and your strength, but it's my right hand that does. This is familiar material. It's biblical. And the song, the the refrain in this is familiar. Scholars point to the fact that this is actually a song that was recited or sang together in confidence and petition of God as the people were going into battle. As Israel was going into battle, this was kind of, I don't know, a battle hymn of the republic, if you will. Uh, You know, we're going to march in and, and God is our strength. This is our source of confidence. Lament Psalms start this way, as an address to God, remembering who he is, what he has done, what his character is. Think with me really quickly. In the New Testament, we see an expansion and a progression of the revelation of who God is. What are God's actions in the New Testament? What does God reveal about himself and who he is in the New Testament that expands on the revelation of God? Obviously, there's a lot. But in Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, what does he reveal to us about who God is? Particularly when he dies and comes back to life, when God resurrects him from the dead, God is more powerful than death. The curse in Genesis 3 is overcome in Christ when he raises from the dead. God is more powerful than the curse. This is the good news, the revelation that comes to us in the New Testament. When life turns upside down, one element of worship is to simply rehearse what God has done. For us as New Testament believers, for us to rehearse what God has done, we need look no further than the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The curse has been conquered. This is powerful revelation. This is against, it's counter-cultural affirmation that God is more powerful than death. God is more powerful than the curse. But the psalm doesn't end there, does it? Thank God that the psalm doesn't end there. Because simply remembering God's past acts isn't enough for the disappointment and the loss that we experience daily, that we experience weekly. So let's move into the second section of the psalm. Psalm 44, verses 9 through 22. This is the people lamenting and complaining about the present crisis to God. But you rejected us and embarrassed us. You did not go into battle with our armies. You made us retreat from the enemy. Those who hate us take whatever they want from us. You handed us over like sheep to be eaten. You scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance. You did not ask a high price for them. You made us an object of disdain to our neighbors. Those who live on our borders taunt us and insult us. You made us an object of ridicule among the nations. Foreigners treat us with contempt. All day long, I feel humiliated and am overwhelmed with shame before the vindictive enemy who ridicules and insults me. All this has happened to us even though we have not rejected you or violated your covenant with us. We've not been unfaithful, God. 
nor have we disobeyed your commands. You have battered us, leaving us a heap of ruins overrun by wild dogs. You have covered us with darkness. If we had rejected our God and spread out our hands in prayer to another God, would not God discover it? For he knows one's thoughts. Yet because of you, we are killed all day long. We are treated like sheep at the slaughtering block. The psalm began on a pretty positive note. But the mood changes in verse 9. Does that feel like a disconnect from how you know we're supposed to talk to God? Does it feel, do you feel dissonance when you hear the psalmist talking like that to God? Is there a bit of you that kind of identifies with that? In the back of your mind, you've played with those thoughts before. You've wrestled with this question of, where are you, God? How could you let this happen to us? The particle that starts this is a strong adversive. There's a huge contrast between what God has done and what's presently happening. But what's happened before, well, that was all well and good. But what's happening now makes me question. It makes me wrestle with. This is heavy stuff. What is happening now is not looking so good. In this section, the psalmist records the lament and complaint of God's people. Uh, The stark contrast is harsh, it feels like. Uh, There's no consideration that their suffering is just by chance. There's a specific cause, a specific reason, and the, the psalmist, the people recognize who this is. Some of you may not completely identify with that kind of loss, but I think most of us do. I think most of us, maybe you haven't experienced the bus crash, the tragic death in your family. Maybe you haven't experienced you know, a bullet killing one of your loved ones. But we all experience loss. We all experience these losses of what we had hoped for in our future. Did you know that's a kind of loss that we experience? A, a hoped-for plan, a desire that we had when it isn't realizable anymore, we experience loss. New parents, when you become a new parent, you experience loss. We don't often talk about this. New parents, you know, congratulations, woohoo, new baby in the house, it's so exciting. And yet as a couple, you lose the freedom that you had before. You lose a significant part of yourself that you give away to keep this little thing alive, you lose and give away to another. Empty nesters, you've finally given and given and given and finally those kids have launched, hopefully not to come back, maybe for dinner, but not anymore. And they've launched, they've gone on, but there's loss that you experience. Your family is no longer what it was for those years. You experience loss and in that loss, We experience disorientation. We experience chaos, a restructuring of everything that we knew. Broken relationships, relationships that you had hoped would happen and didn't. Maybe an experience of not having an intact family growing up. We all experience loss. We all deal with loss in a variety of ways. Sometimes we deny it. 
we ignore the loss and we just go on with life. We cope with it in that way. Another way is by minimizing it, by minimizing the loss. We say things like, don't worry, when God closes a door, he opens a window. You know, you break up with this girl, there's plenty more fish in the pond. We minimize loss in those ways. Don't worry, she's in a better place. That doesn't help at all because I'm still experiencing the loss. We're still experiencing the loss of this loved one in our midst. We no longer benefit from their presence. It's loss. And so one way of coping with that is by minimizing it. And sometimes these are, these are helpful. We intellectualize it. We become stoic about it. We medicate it or spiritualize it. And sometimes when we're going through that loss, we have to cope with it that way just to get through. But when we come out the other side and just leave it at that without having dealt with a loss, that leads to depression. It leads to not fully expressing the loss that we've experienced and really wrestling with that with God. And so another option, maybe when you're going through it, maybe when you've come through it, is to complain to God about it, to cry out to God about the loss that you've experienced. When you feel let down by God, has it ever occurred to you that God is big enough and strong enough and good enough to listen to that complaint from you? God is greater and he can take it. He can take our complaints. That's what he intends for us. He intends that because complaining to God, crying out to God is a bold act of faith in God, in who God is and the character of, of God. There's an objection that comes up often when I make that point. That was the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. Haven't you read the New Testament? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I memorized that when I was a little kid. You shouldn't complain. Rejoice. God has overcome all of these things. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you endure, what? Trials and tribulations. Because you've been counted worthy of this. Suffering leads to holiness, right? Let me reply to that objection with a question. What kind of person complains and laments? In the New Testament, the disciples record a very striking image of the kind of person who complains and laments to God. It looked like, Ilahi, Ilahi, Lima Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me or rejected me? Christ himself on the cross crying out to God a lament psalm, Psalm 22. Do you know how that psalm continues? It continues, I groan in prayer, but help seems far away. My God, I cry out during the day, but you do not answer. And during the night, my prayers do not let up. Those who mock me say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Why do you remain far from me? That's the kind of person that laments and complains to God. Because lament and complaint to God is a bold act of faith in who God is. In this section, we hear in verses 9 through 22, we hear how Israel trusted in God for victory, but the Lord rejected them and allowed them to be defeated and humiliated in battle. How they complained, this whole complaint, in the midst of it, we hear these claims of innocence. I don't know if that grated on you when you heard it, this dissonance. No one's innocent. This is the objection. 
remember Romans 3.23? There's none righteous, not even one. No one's perfect, no one's innocent. So in a sense, in the back of our minds, even when we're going through loss, we think, in some way, I deserve this. In some way, I had it coming. In some way, these people had it. Maybe this is why God punished them, because of their arrogance. That's one way of taking this psalm, and some scholars interpret it this way, but I think that we shouldn't dismiss these claims so lightly, this claim to innocence. Do the innocent suffer? Yeah. Yes, the innocent do suffer. When we finally admit that they do and that suffering is undeserved, sometimes we begin to be ready to learn the central lesson of this psalm. When we see the innocent suffering in this psalm, it helps us to be able to give meaning to our own suffering. Suffering is not a part of unexplained injustice. Miroslav Volv puts it this way. He said, it's rather, suffering is a part of what it means to be like God, to share in the sufferings of Christ, so to speak. Their suffering was for God's sake. As the Apostle Paul uses this passage in Romans 8, the last verse, yet because of you, God, we are all killed all day long. We are treated like sheep at the slaughtering block. Paul points to this in Romans 8 when he talks about the sufferings and groanings of creation. Even after salvation has begun, creation awaits the fulfillment of salvation. Even believers await this. Our suffering is a testimony of Christ's suffering. It's how we participate with Christ who is God, God's suffering. We participate with him. Imagine God's disappointment at his creation. We often think of our disappointment with God or talk about it in that way. Imagine God's disappointment with his creation and the experience of disappointment we see even coming out in Christ on the cross in this, in this phrasing, in this statement. And so when we express that to God, we participate with God and take a bold act of faith. We express faith in him. So complain to God. Cry out to him in the midst of loss and disorientation and suffering. When your heart is broken, when everything around you is broken, cry out to him. In the final section, we look at lament psalms usually work like this. There's an address to God. Oh God, such and such, we remember your history. And then the complaint, the lament, God, this is how I feel disappointed. This is how you've let me down. This is the, the frustration that I'm experiencing in life. And then the last section is a renewal of faith. But God, I will trust in you. But God, I will. It's a renewal. This is how this section comes across. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Wake up! Do not reject us forever. Why do you look the other way and ignore the way we are oppressed and mistreated? For we lie in the dirt with our bellies pressed to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your loyal love. Does that sound like an affirmation of faith to you? <laughs> that also feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? It does to me. How could you talk to God like that? And God doesn't sleep. God knows everything that's going on. Who would think that God sleeps, that God is uninvolved? God doesn't care about my situation, my loss. 
the situation for desperate people who are going through desperate times in times of chaos and disorientation, for those kinds of people, this doesn't feel dissonant at all. When it does seem like God sleeps, when it does seem like God seems unaware, because if God is good and loving and caring and he's allowing this to happen to me, he must be off the job. He must be sleeping. People who are desperate, who are crying out, who have experienced loss and are wrestling with what they should do, pray to God in this way. To people who aren't in that context, this feels like, uh, I don't know, superstitious or foolish prayer. God really isn't like that. But to people in desperate times, this makes sense. This is a prayer, a summon to God. And you know what? In the New Testament, when Christ teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray in this manner. The assumption behind this prayer is that if you don't summon God, if you don't call out to him and motivate him to do something, nothing's going to happen. This is the assumption at work. And so with that assumption in place, this is the assumption even in Christ's prayers in the New Testament, you got to pray out to God. You have to cry out to him and urge him to do something. Isn't that faith? God, I trust your character. I know your character. I know that you don't sleep, but it seems like you are. So do something. Do something about my friend who's dying of cancer. Do something, God. Do you see what's happening in this world? Do something. The only people who can pray like that are people who have the assumption, who have the belief that this one that they're crying out to like that has the power to do something, has the power to actually affect change. So that prayer, as dissonant as that feels to us, as, as wrong and as discordant as that sounds, as that feels, that prayer is an act of faith. To pray like that is an act of faith in God because God is the one who can do something about it. So when we're in the midst of brokenness, of disorientation and loss, cry out to God. Renew, I want to put it this way, renew a holy discontent in how things are because how things are now is not how they were meant to be. The world as we experience it now is not what God intended for this world to be. Have you read Revelations 21 and 22? There's a whole new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, where there are no tears, where all the suffering has been done away with, where death has been destroyed. That is the world we were designed and created to live in. And our experience of anything less than that is less than God intended for us. So I want to challenge you, the last point, renew a holy discontent in this world, in this life, because this world is broken. I am a broken person. This community is a broken community. We break everything we touch. We offer broken hallelujahs to God. And we look forward to the day when he will renew, when he will restore, when he will return and renew and recreate this world as it was meant to be and will bring us into that life, salvation life, 
glorification. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. It feels uncomfortable to talk to God like that, to think about talking to God in that way, right up until you're in the middle of disorientation and loss and you don't know what to do. When the worship songs feel discordant, when they feel disconnected and you come into church and go, this doesn't connect with where I'm at. It can and should connect with where you're at. Not necessarily the music, but the community sharing together and experiencing pain together and sharing our pain together. I want to close today with encouragement for you. Using a lament in times of darkness is a bold act of faith because it insists that all of life is the subject of proper discourse, of proper discussion with God. There's nothing out of bounds in our relationship with God. There's nothing that we cannot talk to God about. The Psalms reaffirm that for us. Psalm 44 reminds us, remember what God has done in the past. Complain and cry out to God for the present situation. When you're in the midst of chaos and brokenness and disappointment, cry out to him about that. Complain to him about that. Renew a holy discontent for how things are now. Talk to God about that. Renew your faith in him. Renew your faith in the hope of what is to come. Be discontented. This is a bold statement of our hope in what God has for us. And so may God comfort you in the midst of this broken life, renewing you a vision of glorious, of the glorious hope that awaits those who trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, recognize our brokenness and loss. We cry out to you, declaring we are broken people. We experience disappointment and disorientation. And so we look to you. We ask you to renew. We cry out, how long, Lord? How long? With the Apostle John, we ask and we plead, come, Lord Jesus, come. How long? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come.